This month, we surpassed 300,000 listens of Future Hindsight. Can you believe that? We are so proud to announce that because it means we're bringing you what you want to hear when it comes to civic engagement. Do you have an idea for a guest of the show? Tweet at us at F-U-T-U-R underscore hindsight. I also know we have some super fans out there, and thank you for being loyal listeners. We'd love for you to support us on Patreon for the price of a latte per month. Sign up for our civics club at patreon.com backslash future hindsight. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Nick Tilson. He's president and CEO of NDN Collective and is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. NDN Collective is an organization led by indigenous people to build indigenous power through organizing, activism, philanthropy, grant-making, capacity-building, and narrative change. Their goal is to create sustainable solutions on indigenous terms, such as building community wealth and shifting power structures, as well as to provide tools and strategies for indigenous self-determination. Last week, we heard about the necessity to build civic power. And in this episode, we'll hear about how NDN Collective and Indigenous communities go about claiming decision-making power. A big part of our work and a big part of our focus here at the NDN Collective, of course, is is to build a collective power of Indigenous people by investing into the self-determination of Indigenous people. It really boils down to people that are directly impacted by the decisions in society are in the driver's seat of those decisions. We'll be discussing decolonization, the power of revitalizing indigenous cultures, languages and traditions, as well as the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Indigenous People and why recognizing it here would upend U.S. policy towards indigenous peoples and the exploitation of natural resources on their rightful lands. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. What is the work that NDN Collective does? A big part of our work is to build a collective power of Indigenous people by investing into the self-determination of Indigenous people. And we do that through three primary areas of impact. Defend, develop, and decolonize. We're talking about defending air, land, water, rights, and community. We're talking about developing regenerative and inclusive economies, the building of community wealth. And then we talk about decolonizing the revitalization of indigenous languages, ceremonies, lifeways, self-governance structures, and decision-making structures. Throughout time... Indigenous power has been under attack by colonization, under attack by a system of white supremacy and systematic racism. So much of our work is about changing and battling those systems and recreating new systems that work for us as Indigenous people. We believe in this vision that when 
the self-determination of indigenous people are invested to, when that is restored, it actually contributes to a world that is more just and equitable for all people in Mother Earth. So concretely, in practical terms, what does self-determination look like? It really boils down to people that are directly impacted by the decisions in society are in the driver's seat of those decisions. You know, sometimes examples is helpful. Let's say there's an energy development project. Let's say it's the fossil fuel industry, and they're going to cross into indigenous lands as they do that project. The system has been in place to basically take away the self-determination of indigenous people for a project like that to go through. Because inherently, the folks know that the people will resist the project because the values aren't aligned. So in U.S. law, in order for any projects to have an impact on indigenous people, they're supposed to consult the indigenous people. But if you compare that to the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, what's actually required is free and prior informed consent of indigenous people that they should have every right to be in the driver's seat of the decision-making process about the things that impacts their families, their lives, their water, their air. We have gotten so far away from that because we have built extractive-based economies rather than regenerative-based economies around the world. And so that's where a huge part of this work around the restoring and investing into the self-determination of indigenous people is all about. Yes, that makes perfect sense. So that you call the shots and you make the decisions on whether you will allow this kind of extractive industry on your lands. How can you compel the U.S. government and or the extractive industry to communicate directly with you and negotiate directly with you? To us, it's really simple. I mean... The pathwork is already laid out in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. What the United States government needs to actually do is institute an entire new policy era that is not an era of consultation, but an era of free, prior, and informed consent as it relates to Indigenous people. The power dynamic completely would be changed because if the extractive industries and the United States government did not get actual consent from the people, those projects wouldn't happen. And therefore, all of a sudden, the decision-making power is shifted and restructured. If folks want to get free and prior informed consent from indigenous people, then we're gonna require it to be aligned with our values. We're gonna take into consideration its impact on the environment and on the livelihood of our communities and our people. In order for that to happen, these structures have to be challenged and they have to be torn down. And that's why Indian Collective is a multimodal organization. We're not just pushing for policy change. We know that we actually have to go after these corporations and we have to go after these federal agencies who have a history of colonizing our people and repeating a cycle of oppression against our people. So this is the perfect segue to ask about decolonization. That is one of your tenets. Can you explain what that means exactly? I think a lot of 
non-native people, non-indigenous people may not really grasp this concept. Yeah, it's not a surprise that people don't grasp it because most people don't grasp the concepts of colonization. So how could they grasp the concept of decolonization? Or even we like to say indigenizing. A fundamental principle of decolonization is also acknowledging that colonization happened in the first place. That in the United States, there was an American genocide in which millions of indigenous people were systematically murdered and killed and our land was stolen. People have this myth that these majestic indigenous people were roaming the plains in this majestic lifestyle before Christopher Columbus got lost and crashed into the beaches in you know, 1492. The reality is that indigenous people of this part of the world had complex societies. We had governance structures. We had laws. We had economies. And so what happened to us through a process of colonization and genocide is our decision-making structures, our governance structures, you know, the familial structures and the ceremonies and the culture that goes along with them, those were destroyed systematically over time. And our ceremonies were outlawed. Our languages were outlawed. So when we think of decolonization, it's not just saying, oh, hey, let's remove the government and all the bad things and replace them with all the good things. It's actually a process of healing. It's a process of the reclamation and the reclaiming of our indigenous identities, returning the stewardship of our lands back into indigenous hands. We're not just talking about physical land back, but to be clear, we are talking about physical land back. There was a system of colonization, a system of white supremacy and systematic racism that was created for the purpose of colonizing our people and taking our lands. We're talking about deconstructing and the dismantling of these systems of white supremacy and colonization that were used to colonize our people and take our lands in the first place. We're talking about many of the foundational principles that the so-called democracy in the United States likes to talk about that it is built upon. It's not just us going and taking something back it's also about the revitalization of exactly who we are as a people. Yes, that makes perfect sense. So it is not only about the land, but it's also about your culture. In what way is reclaiming your culture, revitalizing your traditions, a way to build power? That's a good question. Language is the interpretation of our culture. The direction of those societal structures, they live in our indigenous ways of doing and being. Our indigenous languages are interpreters of these things that our people have observed throughout time. And almost every single indigenous language in the world, there is a word or a phrase that acknowledges that we're all related and that all things are connected. In my tribe, in, in being Lakota, you know, we say Medakoyase, um, which says that we are all related. And that means all systems and all things. But we didn't just automatically come to that conclusion one day. We lived upon this earth and we observed nature interact with each other 
And then over time, as human beings, we emulated those interactions into our society. And so when you think about the revitalization of indigenous languages, of cultural practices, of ceremonies, they are fundamental. They directly inform our structures and therefore passing down that knowledge that allows us to create new languages and apply them into the modern present tense. And so that's why those things are so important as it has to do with building indigenous power. That part of the work is also that is about healing the spirit of our people. In Lakota language, you know, we say our nagji, or our spirit. And that when your spirit is hurt over time, it becomes disconnected from your body. Many indigenous people have become spiritually disconnected because of the efforts to wipe out our culture, because of the atrocities that our people had experienced. And so the language, the ceremonies, the culture play a fundamental role in building indigenous power because they actually help our own healing process and help our efforts to reclaim our power. And we can dismantle things like colonization and systems of white supremacy and systematic racism. Oh, that's very well explained. Thank you. You talked also about development, and this is a key part, of course, of self-determination. So what would development look like in an ideal world for you? It's important that we understand the economies that we once had were built on bartering. They were built on trading. They were built on meeting people's basic needs. We have to get back to some form of that, but in the modern sense. You know, meaning, I'm not saying, hey, everybody go live in teepees or wigwams or different structures of the past. What I'm saying, though, is building an economy on indigenous principles of actually putting community wealth first as opposed to individual wealth. You know, I always like to sort of compare the sustainable development goals and sustainable development design principles with indigenous thought and philosophy. We have to meet the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. When you layer that on top of indigenous principles, like the seven generation concept, there's immense alignment. It's important for us to look back three generations, to look forward three generations, and to honor the seventh generation, which is the generation that we're in. The seventh generation is perpetual. So that we're constantly looking back, we're constantly looking forward, and it's important for us to build economic systems that are based around longevity. And that is the biggest absolute difference between how indigenous people looked at economy and how capitalism in its raw form looks at economy, which is essentially an exploitation of a person, place, or thing, eventually. As we are entering into a world of a climate crisis, of growing pandemics, we're learning that the very economic principles that most of society is operating by in the world are showing that we're actually becoming less resilient as a society. And now I think that You know, corporations around the world, businesses around the world are acknowledging that those things actually impact bottom line. 
And that if we actually want to build economies that are a reflection of people and how we want to live in peace and safety with one another and with the environment. And so thinking about more local control of systems, what does it look like to build an economy that's localized around local living economies and energy systems where people are much closer to where the energy comes from? People can troubleshoot that energy. People can grow their own food so that food has to travel less distances to make it to the kitchen tables of people. These economic principles aren't that far-fetched. It's about retooling them and getting back to that like small is good and that there's actually a way to take care of our people by some of these approaches. We shouldn't have to depend on globalization and capitalism in order to meet the needs of our people. Right. A sustainable economy is available here and now. Today's episode of Future Hindsight is again brought to you by Jordan Harbinger and his award-winning podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. I might be a little bit biased, but I think interview podcasts are among the most enlightening and most entertaining out there. I love delving deeply with someone, understanding how they came to be who they are and helping them share their experiences and wisdom with you. When I listen to Jordan's podcast, I can tell he shares my passion for interviewing. His show has a broader scope than Future Hindsight does, and you never quite know who he'll talk to next, but I can guarantee that it'll be interesting. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show too. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. I have a question about what the land back program is. What does land back mean in terms of getting the land back? Of course, you mentioned that and getting the culture back. But I really want to talk about the land part. The stealing of our lands was one of the fundamental things that they did to colonize our people. We have seen those lands become exploited. We've seen corporations and the U.S. government take advantage of the extractive industries based on those lands. And so the land back movement is about taking that land back from the corporations who stole it taking that land back from the United States government who illegally stole that land and getting that land back into the stewardship, back of, into the control of indigenous people. And so this means radical transformation. You know, if you look at the protests that we were a part of on July 3rd in the Black Hills, it means the closure of our national parks. It means the transferring of public lands that are currently controlled by the Bureau of Land Management by the National Park Service, by the Forest Service, who have proven to mismanage the natural resources of those lands. Those are all just mechanisms to not only steal our land, they've actually been created for the purpose of making sure that indigenous people don't reclaim those lands. Even the National Park System was created for the auspice of saying, oh, we need to protect the natural environment but we're actually not going to include the indigenous people who are the natural stewards and protectors of that environment. In fact, we're going to force them out of their own land and the decision-making powers of their own land. That's why we actually have to think about not only the transfer of land and the stewardship to be moved back into the hands of indigenous people, we actually have to tear down these white supremacist systems and constructs that were created 
for the stilling of our land in the first place. And so it has to happen symbiotically at the same time. There'll then never be the liberation of our people until the connection of the stolen indigenous lands are back into the hands of indigenous people. The important part of that is that we also believe in a world of justice and equity for all people on the planet. So for all of the people, you know, living throughout the United States who are like, oh my God, these indigenous people are going to come knock on our door and drag us out of our houses. The reality is that's not our values. We'll start with the public lands. We'll start with the lands that have been stolen through us by the U.S. government and by corporations. You know, when we talk about this movement to get our land back, we actually do want to build a world that is just for all people and Mother Earth. And in the current system, that is not happening. You know, you're having huge amounts of health disparities, huge amounts of economic inequalities. So, you know, the people who are sitting on private property all throughout America, they're like, oh, my God, they're coming for our lands. Well, you also have to recognize that you being afforded to being on that land in the very first place, that an injustice had to be taken place. And that if we're actually thinking radically about what racial justice and racial equity looks like in this country, there actually can't be a conversation that doesn't include a conversation about the return of indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. Yes, this is clear. And I think we don't really hear that, though, in the media or any place, except, of course, I'm talking to you. <laughs> But what are two things that an everyday American citizen can do to foster equity and justice for indigenous communities and really for people all over the world, the way that you describe. We live in a society today that has been very disconnected from the roots of its history. There's about 26 states in the United States that don't teach any American Indian history at all. And I think that it is not um, the responsibility of indigenous people to teach the history of indigenous people to society today. I believe that it's every American's responsibility. There should not be a school in this country that doesn't teach indigenous people's history. We need to actually teach about the totality of American history. We need to talk about that folks like Abraham Lincoln or that are praised for being these great leaders. They also did very terrible things. Abraham Lincoln ordered the largest mass hanging and execution in the history of the United States when he ordered the mass hanging of 38 Dakotas in Mankato, Minnesota after the Dakota uprising. That's the truth. That's the reality. And so I think that our history is very important because I think that all across America, you've all been lied to. You don't know the history of this country because the colonizer has written indigenous people out of them. The active erasure of indigenous people is alive and well in society today. And so you have to be able to educate yourselves. The more that you become educated on the plight of indigenous people, you can be more connected to the realities that indigenous people are facing today. When you see indigenous people speak up against mascots. You see indigenous people speak up against the exploitation of our lands. Then you have a political analysis of why. And I want to repeat, like, it couldn't be more valuable. Because if you live in America today, it is your responsibility to understand the history of this place. 
It is not the responsibility of the people that you colonized to be here, to teach you our culture, to teach you our history. And so that's one big fundamental thing. We have to support indigenous-led organizations, indigenous-led movements. And there's this whole mentality that we become people's charity case when the reality is we don't need charity, we need change. And what that means is that we need indigenous organizations and tribes and communities and movements to be properly resourced. You have to invest into the people most impacted and don't pretend like you know what's best for us because we have the lived experience of doing that work. You begin to see more and more indigenous candidates throughout America electing more of these people into Congress, into state legislatures, into the Senate, into the decision-making power uh, of society, because then they bring some of those lived experience of being indigenous. And I think that you end up creating, you know, a culture of reality and a culture of knowing. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. I have a question about elected representatives who are indigenous, because in a way, there is some tension about working for the U.S. government and also wanting to rectify this colonization system. How does that hang together? Well, I think it's as clear as mud, (laughs) uh, is what I would say. I think it's fair to say that the process of dismantling white supremacy It doesn't look pretty, but it has to happen on multiple levels. So it's not a question of whether it's either or. We have to recognize that a member of Congress is no more important than the organizer on the front lines because that's a colonial construct that's also created that people in a political power are more important than somebody standing in front of a piece of machinery to protect the sacred ground of their ancestors. If we're going to Um, dismantle a system of white supremacy. We have to celebrate all of the different avenues to circle the enemy. Systematic change and radical transformation requires sacrifice and it requires tension. And out of that tension and out of that sacrifice in a multifaceted effort, then that's when you begin to see the, the, the levers of change happen in society. Yes, I like your strategy on all fronts. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think the thing that makes me hopeful is the hunger that exists in human beings to survive. Human beings have the ability to evolve rapidly. And so many of the things that we're talking about that seem so big and so hard to overcome, how are we going to overcome capitalism? How are we going to dismantle white supremacy? How are we going to do decolonial work? How are we going to work, you know, and live in a society where there is, you know, land back to indigenous people and reparations for black and people of color throughout this nation? The thing that's inspiring to me is that as much as we can hear and see and feel the hate and the destruction that is happening all throughout society, that at the very same time, you can see the tenacity, the courage, the toughness of human beings throughout this nation and throughout this world who are willing to sacrifice their very lives for 
a better life for the future of humanity. There is millions of more people in this world that want to build a world that works for all people and Mother Earth than there is a small group of people who are the actors that are creating destruction and who are designing the very systems that are creating destruction. So the power for me is in the power of the people and the people's ability to radically imagine the very future that we're trying to build and have the courage and tenacity to help us get there. That's one of the things that gives me hope and it gives me power. Well, that's really beautiful. And I totally agree with you. I'm optimistic about humanity and humankind. Thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This conversation about building political power for and by Indigenous peoples really made me think about the various efforts in history of everyday citizens to accrue civic power. Given the long history of oppression, injustice, and erasure of Indigenous peoples, I wonder if now they will finally succeed. In this moment of climate crisis, global pandemic, and nationwide calls for more equity and justice. Tilson is right that the work of decolonization and reclaiming indigenous culture is crucial. For without it, indigenous peoples will continue to be powerless about the decisions and policies that affect their communities. He's also right that this type of radical change requires courage and tenacity. I do hope that indigenous peoples will achieve their vision for a society that builds economies centered on community wealth, indigenous values, and sustainability. Next week, our guest is Adam Cohen. He's the author of Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. He's also a former member of the New York Times editorial board and senior writer for Time magazine. What we've seen in the last 50 years has been a Supreme Court that has been very activist on the conservative side. So if we look at some of the things they've done in the campaign finance cases, including Citizens United, the court has very aggressively struck down laws enacted by Congress and in some cases state legislatures to keep money out of politics or to control its influence. The court has used a very radical view of the First Amendment to strike down those very good laws. So what we're seeing now is a court that is very confident in its own position in its very conservative views and it's using its power in many cases to run roughshod over the decisions of the democratic branches. We discuss the common misperceptions we have about the Supreme Court, the far-reaching influence of the court's decisions in our daily lives, and the ways in which it is supporting Republican and conservative power. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.